Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Shalom, shalom. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. This is episode 68. My name is Joe Amon, coming to you all the way from southwest Louisiana. I hope you are doing well, and your week is going well. Also, I hope you're enjoying summer, and I hope the weather has been good to you. Gosh, hey, you guys, lift us up in prayer whenever you uh, you you think about it. Um, not particularly us, but further south of us, in Lake Charles area. You've heard me mention that area several times. Um, in the last several months, um, gotten a tremendous amount of rain over the last couple of weeks. And um, if you'll recall, we had two major hurricanes that just smashed that area at the end of last year, and then a massive hailstorm, then a an ice storm, which just never happens down here, and then now um, in massive flooding and a lot of folks that were just getting their homes prepared, uh, restored, rather repaired is what I'm trying to say from the hurricanes and stuff, now are having to go through the process all over again. And it's, there are, we're resilient people, and we take care of one another. Um, but my goodness, it's been rough. It's been a long slog the last half of the last year and then this year. So remember uh, those folks in prayer, if you would, um, whenever you pray. And uh, just pray for peace and strength. We'd really, really appreciate it. Uh, but I hope you are doing well, and the weather is good, and life is good where you are. Uh, for those of you that are listening for the first time, just want to say thanks and welcome to the conversation. I uh, want to say a huge thank you to Hebrew Nation for all that they do and the wonderful platform that they have. If you're a longtime listener, then thank you guys for sticking with us and uh, for joining the conversation and being an awesome fellowship and uh, just community and for all the support and all the great things. We really appreciate it. Uh, catch up with us on Shabbat, 10 a.m. Central. We live stream every Shabbat, uh, except for every once in a while when we do just kind of like family discussion type things. Um, but join us on Facebook, YouTube, our website, outofashesministries.org, uh, on our mobile app. We would love to connect with you. We've got people from all over the world that join in and fellowship, and it's an awesome, awesome thing. Uh, Hashem is good and, uh, and been good to us. So uh, last week we talked about... Uh, Shavuot continued. I know that most people have celebrated Shavuot by now, um, and yet it tends to be a one-day holiday that kind of comes and goes, and uh, yet in Scripture there are some massive implications. Shavuot is a a really important uh, holy day and holy time, Um, and so we want to just talk about the continuation of Shavuot. So many wonderful things happen on or around Shavuot that, that, that push forth ripples throughout the, the rest of history, and uh, it's important that we kind of talk about those things. So uh, last week we talked about Shavuot continued. This week will be Shavuot continued again, <laughs> and uh, we're going to look at a couple more uh, different aspects of Shavuot. And uh, before we do that, as always, let's go to the Father in prayer. Father, we bless you. 
We thank you for this incredible time. I thank you for everyone listening, and I pray your your richest blessings on them for good health, for peace, for safety, uh, for for plenty. And uh, and Father, we just pray that you lead us all to bear your image a little better in our world. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, so this week, we're going to continue to talk about Shavuot. We're going to shift our focus from Shavuot in the wilderness uh, and Sinai and the anniversary of the giving of the Torah, and we're going to shift to the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth is traditionally read uh, during Shavuot for very good reason. And again, uh, massive implications in the book of Ruth. That is, you know, it's only four chapters. You can read it in, I don't know, you know I'm slow, and I can read it in about 20 minutes. But massive implications from the book of Ruth. So very, very exciting. Uh, so let's just dive in. I want to kind of read through Ruth since it's not that long. And we're going to stop and, and comment and there's some things I want to interject along the way. So we are in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. And I'm reading from the NIV today. Uh, it's just the Bible I happen to have with me. Uh, and so let's start. So in the days when the judges ruled, so it's important. So the, the book of Judges um, kind of, uh, you know, it's this tumultuous time in Israel's history. Now, I was taught uh, the book of Judges as the sin cycle. And uh, Marty Solomon picks this up on the Bama podcast, if you've listened through those episodes. Uh, and I love the way he turns it around and talks about the redemption cycle. And we focus less on on the sin. Here, here's the thing. Uh, here's the thing that the sin cycle ideal um, creates in some people, in, in me. So I'm speaking from my own experience. But if we kind of have an idea that at, at this time, at least, in the Bible, right, if we're, we're good Christians, and at this time in the Bible, Israel was, God, uh, was God's chosen people, and yet they're in this sin cycle, right? And so they fall down, they mess up, God picks them back up, he gets a little annoyed, they fall down again, he picks them up again, a little more annoyed, falls down again, picks them up again, much more annoyed. You know, if I, and, and if we have that, that concept and we focus on the falling down and the sin, the failing part of, of the story of, uh, of the time of the judges, then um, what it can create in, in us as believers is this idea that, well, if Israel is God's chosen people at this time and like... He like he's that aggravated and that mad, you know. When they when they mess up, um, then gosh, like, why would he treat me any differently? And it can can create almost kind of a complex in us where where we start to live our lives in a way where every time we slip up, every time we mess up, um, you know, we always have this thing like, oh gosh, you know, God's gonna, oh, he's aggravated with me, and and can kind of create that kind of lifestyle. And it's really it's toxic, really, to be honest. And um, so I love the way that Marty kind of flips it upside down and, and talks about it as a redemption cycle. Uh, I think that's awesome. And uh, so it creates a much healthier and help, more helpful view of the fact that, yes, we are going to fall down. Yeah we, yeah, we have sin. We know that. And we don't like it. We're not comfortable with that. And yet we choose to focus on the redemption of God and his faithfulness and his loyalty to us 
rather than just the continuation of like, oh, am I pleasing? Am I not? Am I in his will? Am I not? Is he aggravated today or not? Did I get a flat tire because I slipped up and said a curse word yesterday? Like that kind of retributional type of <laughs> type of thing. Um, and so this this story is set in the time where Israel is faith, you know, they're they're faithless. Um, it is kind of the defining characteristic of the time of the judges as a nation and and as kings uh, and the judges. And yet, um, you have the story of Ruth, who's not even an Israelite, and her faithfulness. And it's kind of a, a cool paradox. So, um, there was a famine in the land, verse 2. I'm sorry, still in verse 1. So, a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. And they were Ephratites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now, if you know anything, if you remember your biblical history, like you should have like red lights, right? Just Danger Will Robinson should be going off in your head when you read about them going to this place called Moab or Moab. Uh, verse 3, now Elimelech named his husband died, and she was left with her two sons. Uh, they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. After they lived there about 10 years, both Milan and Kilion also died. So Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Holy smokes. All right. So massive drama, right? Just to begin with, you have these Judeans, uh, Elimelech and his wife and his two sons, uh, that there's a famine in the land. And what happens when there's a famine? What happens when there's catastrophe? I just talked about, you know, us down here in the southwest corner of Louisiana just being absolutely battered the last, you know, nine months or so. What happens when there's catastrophe? Um, people freak out. People, you know, it's not like you're, uh, I don't believe Elimelech and Naomi are, you know, are just kind of chilling at the house one day going like, you know, there's a famine and stuff and, I guess we should go somewhere. Like it's not like they're planning a vacation. Um, it's not like they're just going. Well, you know, like, let's just scoot down. Let's just scoot over to Moab. You know, it's just east of here. Um, let's just cross over and, and go hang out in Moab for a little while. I'm sure this will die down, and we'll come back, and it'll be all all kosher. Um, I don't. I don't sense that because they know the story. They know uh, the warnings, and uh, we'll read those uh, or we'll refer to those at least. No, I want to read this one. Deuteronomy chapter twenty three. It gives a stern warning to Israelite and their to Israel and their relationship with the Moabites. So in verse four it says, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of their descendants may enter the assembly of Hashem, not even in the tenth generation. For and he tells you why. For they did not come to greet you uh, and meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, son of Baal, from Pitor and Aram, Naharim, to pronounce a curse on you. However, Hashem your God would not listen to Bilam, uh, but turn the curse into a blessing for you because Hashem your God loves you. Verse 6 is incredible. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. Um, now that's the NIV again. The Stone Tanakh uh, says, uh, don't seek their well-being. So this says a covenant of friendship. The Stone Tanakh says, don't seek their well-being. Um, if you see a Moabite in danger, too bad. Turn and walk the other way. That's pretty severe because we know how Hashem, you know, uh, generally deals with people. Israel's supposed to be a light to the nations. Moab, nah. Um, so you could get around this. Well, they went to Moab. Moab didn't come into the into their assembly. They went to um, uh, they went into Moab, right? So it's like, well, 
we didn't really break the commandment. I don't know if that's a thought process. I'm just speculating. Um, so we have this um, we have this this drama right off the bat. I mean, it's it's serious. This is famine, and you have the Naomi's husband dies. Huge deal. So our two sons marry Moabite women. Ah, what is going on? Like this is just a tailspin. Um, and then the two sons die. Holy smokes. So she's left with no one. So let's go on and continue reading. In verse 6 it says, Naomi heard uh, in Moab that the Hashem had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. She and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May Hashem show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. And may Hashem grant, you, grant, eat, grant that each of you excuse me, will find rest in the home of another husband. That's an important idea we'll talk about. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return to your home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more, it is more bitter for me than for you because Hashem's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again, then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. So we're going to stop there before we get into the next section and talk about uh, this idea that Naomi loses her husband and her two sons. And so when they, she's having a discussion with the daughters-in-law about, um, about going back home and sending them back to their, their mother's home, their parents' home, they have this discussion, and she begins talking about having more sons and them waiting. Well, what, it, what is this? What is this all about? Um, we are told in the Torah about something called yibum. Yibum, uh, Y-I-B-U-M. This is a, a good way to, to, um, to spell it. Yibum, and we, we also call this Leverite marriage, right? Um, where for the sake of, well, well, we'll read it. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25. What's cool about this is that she's talking to them about Yibum, your Leverite marriage, and they seem to understand, which is indicative of kind of the way that most things in Torah are, especially because Israel lives surrounded by other civilizations, by other cultures, and they are more, how does Dr. Walton say it? They are more similar to each other than we are to them. I hope that makes sense. So Dr. Walton, John Walton, talks about Babylon. And he says that like ancient Israel would be more similar to Babylon than we would than they would be to us today, something like that. Um, and and it's true that they are. They're customs that are just kind of status quo for the people of the time, no matter if you're Israelite or Moabite or Canaanite or Philistine or whatever. And so this this idea of Leverite marriage is is a, a kind of, seems to be a central kind of thing in all the cultures. So in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy twenty five, verse five, it says, um, Let's see, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, he shall go to the elders of the town gate and say, My husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. 
he will not fulfill the duty of the brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I do not want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, and say, This is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. <laughs> so this is a super big deal, right? So the, the Torah tells us um, why Leverite marriage, why Yibum is so important. And I, don't, I think we read it, and I don't think we get it. So we're going to talk about it a little bit. He, it says in verse uh, 6 of chapter 25 of Devarim, it says, the, the first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Okay, so we mentioned this a little bit last week, but I want to drive it home and expand the conversation a little bit so that maybe it's a little easier to understand. When we talk about... Um, you know, we are Israel and, and those, you know, when we say things like that and when we try to find, place our identity and figure out who we are, are we still Gentiles? You know, we've come to Torah, we, you know, what, who are we, where do we belong, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this conversation becomes really important. So in the ancient world, uh, and we still have some kind of, uh, you know, trailings of it today, not, not many, but in the ancient world, every nation has a a god and they have a they have a cult worship now when i say cult i don't mean like um waco and uh whatever that guy's name was um i don't mean that kind of cult i don't think like the the sense of uh you know a scary stay away from them cult like what we think about today some of you <laughs> probably have been accused of being in a cult when you said i'm not going to church on sundays i'm not celebrating christmas and easter what kind of cult are you in i don't mean cult in that sense in the academic term in the academic sense um the uh the word cult just means the religion of a, a na- of a god and the practices of worshiping that god that's it's cult worship and so every nation in the ancient world um, has a cult god, and they have, they have a system of cult worship. So in Egypt, we know this, of course, uh, you know, the Pharaoh is, is God on earth in a sense, um, and there's a pantheon, right, of, of, um, of gods. We know this from Babylonian writings. We know we've, we, I've encouraged you before to read Enuma Elish. So we, we know about Marduk and, and those, those things. Um, we know about the Assyrian gods. We know about Ishtar, right? Uh, and Nimrod. We know about those gods. And so there's every nation, every civilization has a cult god. And he, the important thing is that the God defines the people, but also the people define the God. So what do I mean by that? Well, we don't know anything about Marduk except for what the Babylonians left us in their writings. The Mesopotamians, we don't know anything about him, anything about uh, his characteristics or who he was. We've never experienced him. We don't know anything about him except for what has been left in his writings and how his people defined him, how they saw him, how they characterized him. And so we know that, that the worship of Marduk, just for instance, right, uh, led to a, a molding of, the, of the, those people to a certain degree and how they lived and how they thought and, how, and their worship practices and their temple building and uh, all these different kinds of things. We know that it, it molded them 
to a degree, and yet we we know that they have some uh, some responsibility to define who he is for future generations. And so every nation has this going on. Every single one does, and it's this uh, this you know back and forth relationship, this reciprocal relationship between the gods setting parameters to define the people, and then the people in in through their writing and through their experiences defining the god based on how he interacts with them and they see him or her. So what we have now is we have the Exodus, and we have these people living in a land that's not their own. Uh, controlled by a pharaoh and and in a land that worships gods that are not the gods of their or the god of their forefathers, right? And you don't in the ancient world you don't have a nation without a deity. It just doesn't it doesn't doesn't work like that. Um, it's built into their experience. It's built into who they are. That in order to to be a nation, um, we think well like you have to have a central government, and that's certainly part of it. But in their world, you have to have you have a deity. You have a deity that's responsible for the formation of your nation, but also is re- by implication is, is uh, or by extension is uh, responsible for the formation of the world and all the other people, but you are his people, or you are her people. Is any of this sounding familiar? So when we have Israel's story, Israel gets rescued out of a land that's not their own, from gods that are not their own, and from a leader, a king that's not their own. They get, they get uh, rescued out by a god, and that god's name is yod heh Yahweh, academically, Yahweh will use, it is it's Hashem, the one we refer to as Hashem, Adonai, the name, the Lord. Um, that is the name of their god. Now, their god meets with them on Mount Sinai and begins to define what it's going to look like to be his people. In, in, a, in an incredible encounter and, a, and then subsequent document that would be called the Torah. And then the rest of the story of the Tanakh is the people then and God, this reciprocal relationship of God saying, this is how I want you to act, and the people then responding by defining how God is acting with them. The important point, and the thing I want you to drive home, is that for every nation... In the ancient world, they have a cult god that their people, their national people, is the people of that god. Period. If you, if you are conquered by another nation, you, you become a part of that nation and you serve that nation's god. Because that nation's god is the one that gave dominion of his people over your god and your people. We have this sense today in modernity, that, well, the one we call God really is the only God, and he is the God of everybody, and he's the God of the whole world, he's the God of creation. And while all those things are true, 100%, 1,000% true, what we've done when we, when we uh, b- by, that, by that thought process, by that logic, what we've done then is we've diluted the very people that brought that God to the rest of the world. So not many people in the world know about Marduk, right? Why? Because the Babylonians ceased to exist in in that iteration. Um, We know China, right? China is is a Buddhist country. Our major religion is Buddhism. Well, Buddhism is not super, super duper old. I mean, it's old, but it's not as old as Judaism, as far as we know. And and yet, how do we know about Buddhism? Because the Chinese people survive, 
right? Um, we big fascination over the last couple of decades with the Mayans, right? And, and that religion and the Mayan calendar in the world and all this kind of stuff, right? Well, we don't know a whole lot about the Mayans because as a civilization, they haven't really survived to be a, a, a major, you know, a major distinction in the, in the, in the world's population. There's a lot of African tribes that we don't know anything about their gods because the people haven't flourished and conquered and dominated uh, lands to the point where it, makes a, where it makes a big... Now, in the continent of Africa, they know, but the rest of the world doesn't know. And, and so I want us to think about really narrowly that for our intents and purposes for this episode and for the next couple episodes, Israel... Um, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one we called Yahweh, yod heh um, he is Israel's cult God, period. He's not the God of the Assyrians. He's not the God of the Mesopotamians. He's not the God of the Egyptians. He is Israel's God, and they are his people. He could have chosen the Assyrians or the Phoenicians or the Moabites or anybody else, but he didn't. He chose Israel, and he is their their God. It's a one-to-one relationship, just like it is in the rest of the ancient world. We'll be right back after the break. So Israel has this God, this cult God, and again, he is, he is their God, they are his people. And, and I, I, it's so hard to kind of break through the way we think about this because, yes, God, the God that we serve is the God of all creation. He is the only one and true God. Um, he is the God of all mankind, of all humankind. All of that is true, and yet at his, it, in the beginning of the story um, of the nation of Israel, he is not all those things. He is not seen as those things. Um, he is, though, let me correct that. He is those things, but that's not how the Bible portrays him. And that's not, I don't believe, how the ancient people maybe necessarily understood him. Because as we read other ancient writings, uh, as we read Assyrian writings and Akkadian writings, Sumerian, on into Babylonian, and then you know, on from there, what we find out is that the, the things that they attribute to their gods are very similar to the things that the nation of Israel attributes to its God. That he is, he is responsible for creation. He is responsible for humanity. He's responsible for order or chaos in the world. He's responsible for you know, peace or, or war, unity or disunity, and all those kinds of things. Um, but yet, he is most importantly concerned with the welfare of that people. And if that sounds a lot like what you read in the Tanakh, it's for good reason. It's because the Bible was written for us, but not uh, to us. And God's ultimate authority is placed in the authors that, that he chose to write these things down for our benefit. And they thought about the world in a certain way. We covered all this in our Genesis series. They thought about the world a certain way, and God allowed them to write about him and to, in a way, define him or attribute to him. Um, through the way that they saw the world. 
And that's where the authority lies. It's in the author and because that's who God gave the authority to. So Israel is God's and God is Israel's. Um, he's, their, he's their cult God. And there's a cult worship that's set up, the tabernacle, the offerings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, all these things are like that. Now, Israel, of course, would have believed that, that God is ultimate, right? He says over and over. Um, this is the reason why he says over and over, or one of the reasons why uh, he reminds them over and over, I am the one who brought you out of Egypt, right? I am the one who rescued you on eagle's wings. I am the one who is your deliverer. I am the one who, who, who saved you, who ransomed you, who redeemed you, et cetera, et cetera. That language is all over because what's happening at the, the inception of Israel as a nation is that there has to be that establishment between the deity and the people. There has to be that establishment. Um, other civilizations around Israel um, likely maybe existed, you know, they existed before Sinai, before Israel was formed as a nation. These other nations existed, and they already had a pedigree of religion. They already had an ancestral tradition that would have been passed down. And so it's all good. You're born into it. You serve the God. Things evolve and change because that's what things do as time goes on. And yet Israel's starting fresh. I mean, yes, you had Avraham, Yaakov, and uh, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, uh, and you had the beginnings of a nation, and yet now here's like the real deal. Here's where it's all coming to a head. And so Israel would have seen Hashem as, um, as their God primarily, and he was out for their well-being and demanded their loyalty and really could not care about how the other nations um, dealt with him or were faithful to him or not, even though he is the God of all creation, they don't care because they have their own gods and they're doing their own thing. This God is worried about us. And we then in return are responsible to spread his character, his image, his kingdom, his way, his Torah through the rest of the world. So I hope that makes, that makes some sense. I hope it, it, uh, it hurts your brain a little bit, but gets you to kind of think outside of the outside of the box a little bit more and think a little more narrowly as we talk about uh, Ruth and, and the story because R- Ruth basically says like, hey, um, you guys go, go back, you know, you ladies go back to, your, go back to your, your gods and to your parents' home. Go back to your mother's house, she says. Um, let's see, that's in uh, verse uh, 11. Now said, return home my daughters um, and talks about the sons, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so this, this idea of like, you have your gods, you have your thing, go, go do that, which is really cool because even today, the Jewish people are not missionary, uh, they're, they're not missionaries, you know, like we are trained to be in Christianity, they're not missionaries. Like, no, you go do your thing and, and God be with you, and, and Naomi even says the same thing, like, may Hashem bless you, you know, for the kindness, repay you for the kindness, and settle you in someone else's, you know, in, in another husband's home. And, uh, and like, and that's good, because we got our thing going on, and we're going to do that. <laughs> and I just, I think that's really interesting how ancient that idea is. Um, and so this idea of Yibum is really important because Israel has a God, Right? And this God is the, he's the greatest of all. He's the king of kings. He's the, he's the, the God, he's God, capital G of all the gods, little g. And the Torah and the Tanakh describe him like that. Um, the, there's a word called, we think of polytheism, right, which is the belief in a lot of gods. And then we think about monotheism, the belief in only one God. There's something in the middle there called monolatry, 
Monolatry is the is the the belief in a lot of gods, the existence of other gods, but there's only one you serve because he's supreme. And scholarship tends to put Israel there instead of really in mono. And Judaism claims monotheism, and Christianity does too. Claims Israel is monotheistic, and yet it seems like Israel is more monolatrous. They believe there are other gods in existence in other nations around them, at least in their ancient beginnings, and yet they serve this one God because he is the, he is the head of all the gods. He's the Lord over all other gods. So I know this can be kind of sticky when you first start thinking about it. It may even be a little, a little offensive. It's okay. Chew on it. Think about it. It's okay. Nobody's mad. Um, and so the Leverite marriage or Yiboom is really important because you have a covenant as an Israelite that no one else on the earth has. No other nation has the, the, the God of creation, like not these other gods. These other gods are not even really, you know, they're not even really a big deal. This God that Israel runs into and is rescued by and is redeemed by and then is married basically at Mount Sinai, this God is the true, the one true creator God. He's the, he's it. He, he is it. And he chose you, a bunch of slaves, and gave you not only redemption, but then gave you a mission, a mission to serve him and to protect his covenant and his commandments. No other nation, no, nobody else at at this time understands this. Nobody else has this understanding. Nobody else has this privilege. Nobody else has this revelation at this time. It's the people of Israel, B'nai Israel, as the Torah says over and over and over. Hey, Moshe, speak to B'nai Israel. Hey, Aaron, speak to B'nai Israel and tell them this and that, right? Nobody else has this privilege. So when you have a man, you have brothers, and one dies without a son, then that's one less generation that's going to be able to carry this covenant on so that the next generation can know it and the generation after that so that the promise of Abraham can be fulfilled. That's the point, that they would be a blessing to all nations. That's the whole, that's the driving force behind this whole thing. It's not like, oh, yay, we have a God, now forget everybody else. No, it's that we have a God and we have been given a charge, a task to go out and spread the knowledge of this God and bless other nations with his incredible image. And that's our goal. That's the reason we breathe. It's not just because, yay, we can be safe and sound. You know, like sometimes we feel like in church, like, oh, we had a wonderful moving service today. And then we go out and we don't carry it outside the doors. Sabbath fellowship. Oh, you had such a great Sabbath fellowship. And then you leave it at the door. And it's like, no, the point that you, that God even gives us those experiences and those, those encounters is so that we carry it out. And so many times we just bottle it up and we're glad that we had it. And it's just like, well, kind of poop on everybody else because they didn't have it. They should have been here. Too bad for them. No, no. The, the point is that God gives you those encounters so they can be shared. So the, the, when you have you boom, you have a live right marriage. One of the major aspects of it in ancient Israel is that so the, the covenant and the, the blessing of the covenant and the responsibility of the covenant continue to the next generation. And, and, and Deuteronomy tells us that. Deuteronomy 25 uh, verse, uh, what is that, 7 or 8, tells us that. That his brother should take up that responsibility to bear a child or produce a child for him, a son for him, that will carry his brother's name. So he's biologically the, the, the brother's son, but, but spiritually and technically he is the, dead, the deceased brother's son. 
And so it says, so that his name will not be left out of the nation of Israel. That's huge. That's huge. We don't understand how huge that is. So when, when it comes to Leverite marriage, we think like, oh, it's kind of weird, whatever. Yeah, it's kind of weird because we weren't there. <laughs> because we're Americans and it's the land of the free and the home of the brave and we have opportunities and we have freedom and we have all these things, these luxuries that ancient people didn't have. Not just Israel, ancient people, period, didn't have. And yet they get this incredible gift. Okay, so stop beating that dead horse. So the... Um, this Yiboom and Leverite marriage is a huge, huge, huge thing because it's all about the conservation and perpetuation of the covenant. Again, that is one of a kind nobody else has. Uh, so we'll pick up in chapter 1, verse 15. Uh, read verse 14 again. They wept out loud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, and Ruth, but Ruth clung to her. Verse 15, look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May Hashem deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging. Verse 19, so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Now, I love Rabbi Foreman, Rabbi David Foreman of Aleph Beta. Uh, you should check him out. If you haven't, he's brilliant and uh, really approaches uh, Scripture from a, a different perspective than probably you and I are used to. Uh, fantastic stuff. So it'll challenge you and encourage you. So I, I encourage you to do that. So when he's talking about Shavuot and he's talking about uh, Naomi and Ruth, uh, one of the questions that he has and one of the, the, the observations that he makes is that um, for most of us, and, and he's speaking to a Jewish audience, but I would even say for a Christian audience especially, um, what do we know about the book of Ruth? What, what's, the, what's the big deal about the book of Ruth for us as Christians? It's this section right here. It's these four or five verses where you go, I'll go, well, you know, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. You know, where, where you die, I'll die, et cetera. Like that's the money ball. That is the, that's the brunt of, that's the purpose of the book of Ruth, right? Is that section. And at least that's, that's kind of how we think about it. And yet this happens at the end of chapter one. And there are four chapters. This statement is made at the end. So like, why not just end it go and go like, and they live happily ever after? <laughs> why, why, why are there three more chapters if this is the big point of Ruth? Maybe it's because, and Rabbi Foreman's conclusion is that this is not the point of Ruth, the book of Ruth. This is not the money ball. This is not the, the precipice and the high point. This is not the climax of the story yet. This is the turning point surely in the story, but there are implications after this, and that's what we tend to not focus on. That, and, and yet, maybe that's what's actually the important part of this story, is how the story plays out from there. And man, that really hit home for me as, as, a, as a Christian, or as a, you know, as a, a follower of Yeshua, because, um, man, how many times have we seen in our own lives, or we've seen in other people's lives, we come to God, and we have an encounter, we have experience, we're saved, born again, however you want to think about that, however you phrase that, um, and it's a big deal. And then there's a turning point, right? And then, and then what are the implications of that? 
does anything change after that? Or is it like, are there any results? Is there any fruit? Or is it, does it change the course of anybody's history? I don't know. I mean, yeah, for some it does. For many it does. Um, but for many it doesn't. And so it's a, I think it's a good question to ask. Why are there three more chapters? What, what's the point of the, the rest of the book? And so here what you have in Naomi and Ruth is interesting because you have not only a Moabitess, which is a big deal, but you have Naomi, who's a Jew, and I say, is she from the tribe of Judah? I, we're not told. Who knows? She's from the area of Judea. That makes her a Jew. Um, we tend to think, in, um, especially because of influences of two-house theory and things like that, um, we tend to think that the Jews come from the tribe of Judah. And I taught that for a long time. I've since changed my thinking on that. Um, but Jews don't just come from the tribe of Judah. The Jewish people are Jews, Yehudi, um, are mostly from the tribe of Judea, or from the land, excuse me, the land of Judea. Most of them, and many of them, were in fact Jews from the tribe of Judah, but there were assimilation from all the other tribes there around Jerusalem in the land of Judea. So uh, that's, that's academically and probably more correctly why we have the Jews. They know, they, they know the Jewish people know that they have a lot, all the tribes mixed in. They come from the land of Judea. So um, let's continue to read. Uh, we are in, still in chapter 1, we are in verse 20. The ladies say, is this Naomi? And she says, don't call me Naomi. Uh, she told them, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but Hashem has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Uh, Hashem has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned to Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So again, you have Naomi, this Jew, and Ruth, this Gentile. Let's just... Let's classify it like that, right? It's a lot more complicated, a lot, but that's what it is. You have this, this Jew, this Yehudi, and this Gentile. This covenant woman, Naomi, and one from a nation that has another God, a whole other system, a whole other thing going on, right? And so she, Naomi basically renames herself Mara. Now, we, we, if we know the Torah well, we know the word Mara means bitter, right? Uh, Mara Merivah, the, the bitter waters. Um, and so she, she talks about Hashem making her life bitter, which I think is really interesting. Um, and it says that the, it was the barley harvest. The barley harvest was beginning. So what time of year is this? This is Pesach, right? This is Passover. So what's, what's really cool is that now that, we, that you and I have started studying Torah and we understand the feast cycle, we understand the timing of the year, we can read the book of Ruth, and we know things are going on in the everyday life of the characters that we're reading about that are not mentioned in the text. I think that's really cool, um, and that gives a lot of depth. So when it says that you know it was the it was the the beginning of the bar, barley harvest, we can all always go like, oh, okay, so then Passover's going on. So that's Passover. That's Hakamatzah, uh, Matzah. That's uh, you know the way that's all these things are happening. Um, at this time, and then they're like, they're counting the Omer, right? So we have a really good context and a sense of timing where the characters are not just floating around and we don't know what's going on, but we have a, re a way to really uh, concretize them, and, and that is a word, <laughs> to, to concretize the story and, and what's happening. Uh, so let's start into chapter two. We may not get all the way through chapter two uh, today, but there's always next week. So uh, chapter two. Uh, now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Uh, 
And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. And it turned out she was working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Then, uh, just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. Hashem be with you. Hashem bless you, they answered. Uh, Boaz, the overseer of his harvest, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab and with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning uh, till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go out and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, which I think is really a cool statement. And whoever, whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars uh, the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? And Boaz replied, I have been told about you, what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother. And listen to this, listen to this wording, okay? He says, I've been told about all you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, since how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May Hashem repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by Hashem, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. I think that's really, really beautiful. And again, I'll kind of uh, connect back to Rabbi Foreman here. Um, I didn't catch this, but he brought it up. That sounds very similar to someone we've heard about before. Um, You left your father and mother, came to a land that's not yours, to a people that are, that are not yours. Does that ring any bells for anybody? Well, that's, that's Abraham, right? Avram. That's in, uh, in Genesis. We get just a, a real quick, super quick introduction to Abraham. And you would think like Abraham, Abraham's the father of the faith. Like Noah, we find out he's a righteous in his generation, etc. Like we get, a, we get an idea about Noah and about what's, what's going on with Noah. Abraham, we really don't get anything. We get a little bit of a genealogy. And then we get, uh, I don't know, like three or four verses that talk about Abraham, but not anything really super, um, super, super detailed. Uh, but we do find in Genesis chapter 11 um, that, uh, I'm sorry, for chapter 12, first verse of chapter 12, Hashem said to Abraham, had said to Abraham, go away from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. And then there's the promise of being a great nation and blessing uh, the people. Uh, and so Ruth is compared to, it kind of picks up the Abraham vibe here. First of all, she's a foreigner, right, that comes to the land of Israel, which is where Abraham was told to go. Uh, he was a foreigner. He wasn't an Israelite. And she is lauded for her giving up her family, leaving her land, her gods by contact, by implication, all those things. And coming, and when she says, let me just go back for a second, when she has that really, you know, the famous speech in chapter 1, um, talking about with, with Abraham, this same kind of Abrahamic thing, she says um, in, verse, in chapter 1, uh, verse 16, don't urge me to leave you a term after you. She says, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. We, we like to focus on the your God will be my God part, but we don't 
really focus on the your people will be my people. Now, given all that we've talked about and the foundation we laid in the first part of this episode, who is the people? Who are the people of God? They are Israel. So your people will be my people. That means not just that like, you know, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to still do my thing, but I'll have neighbors and friends that are Israelites. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, you know, it's not like, well, you know, I still do, you know, I, I'm, I, I, you know, I know about the Torah, I know about the Sabbath and stuff, but I still do my Christian thing. And, you know, I may have a couple of Jewish friends or whatever, but that's cool. They do their thing and I do mine. Like, she's like, your, your God will be my God, right? I'm forsaking the God that I serve. Your people will be my people. That means your people, your culture, your language, your tradition, your ancestry, your, I'm taking all of it. I'm leaving everything behind and I'm taking all of it. In Judaism, this is seen as conversion. She converted. And even today in modern Judaism, when you convert, in an, especially in an Orthodox conversion, that is, the, that is the idea. I had a rabbi tell me once that, you know, he said, we, uh, rabbis don't, uh, don't, you know, decline conversions uh, of Gentiles because we don't want you. He said, we decline because you don't understand what you're, what you're doing most of the time. We want you to understand what you're doing. You're giving up everything in your old life, beliefs, understandings, perspective. You're giving it up, and you're taking on the, the beliefs, and the, you're taking on the, the, of Israel, of, of the Jewish people. The, the, that is the same thing that's supposed to happen when we start following our Jewish Messiah, Yeshua, Am I saying we're all supposed to convert? No, I'm, I'm saying we're supposed to, that's the type of change it's supposed to be, that we shed all that old stuff and we become new, as the New Testament tells us. We're going to wrap up this episode here, and uh, we'll get through the rest of chapter 2 and into chapter 3 and 4 over the next episode and possibly a fourth. We'll see. But I hope this conversation has been good. It's been helpful for you as we continue to think about Shavuot as we approach Elul and then the, the fall feast. So until next week, Hashem bless you. Shalom, shalom.